Sophie Atkinson, the Editor-in-Chief at Oak, the Nordic Journal. Welcome to the Nordic Traces podcast. Oak Volume 9 was dedicated to creative spaces, and as such, Oak writer Charlie Robin Jones interviewed Icelandic artist Olafur Iliasson in his legendary Berlin studio. Uh, I know that sort of the studio has always been a part of your practice and uh, collaborative practice, but when did that conception of an artist as being one that involves the studio so much? When did this start for you? Well, when I was a child, I... um, I... um, At some point in my childhood, um, had a little shed that I built as a child out of leftover you know, um, junk from a construction yard or from a nearby house being teared down. Um, and the, I, uh, that I did with, you know, always with other kids. Um, but I, it was in my gardens, it was in my garden and, um, you know, I, um, I kind of built a little house or something like that in which we could play. Um, <clears throat> when my parents um, found out that I had, in fact, collected junk from the neighboring houses, junkyards, or, you know, from the back of their gardens and so on, they were not very impressed. <laughs> but nevertheless, I mean, I don't, I don't exactly know um, how it started. Maybe it's interesting to uh, begin at a different point when I started making art, I worked with art more conceptually. And um, for instance, when using a light projector mm-hmm. for a work of art, it was I wasn't interested in making the light projector, um, or I was more interested in influencing the light coming out of it by adding some components to it. So that means I would ask a light engineer to help me or a light projector specialist, like a person from a theater, to help me. And um, when I needed to fix the light projector in the ceiling securely so it wouldn't fall down and break or hit somebody, I would ask a, uh, you know, a builder who would know how to fix a heavy light projector in the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And um, when I um, would try to collect money to rent the light projector or buy it, I would ask somebody who knows about how to make grants um, uh, for an application uh, because I was not really very good at that. And that meant, and I guess the point to get to the core of this, the point is what when I started as an artist, it was common, it was common that um, art was not uh, how should I say this? Art was not in um, art was not inherited. It was not inherent in the objects, or the idea of objecthood as such in sculptural terms or in artistic terms, was uh, non not really what defined a work of art. The artistic potential laid in the conceptual, the narrative, or the mm-hmm. experiential or the perceptual uh, qualities of what I did. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, because the we could say the artwork or the artistic, what could be the artistic potential, did not lay in the material. Mm-hmm. It was very easy, or oh, it was. Uh, it was uh, not unusual for me to uh, 
uh, outsource or delegate or mm-hmm. to get somebody who is better than me to to say I wanted I knew what experience I wanted um, and I would then just get the material what that would make that experience uh, the most relevant so actually for instance when I did one of my very early pieces a rainbow piece with water drizzling down mm-hmm. I called up a theater uh, a guy who actually used to rent light for theaters uh, because I said to him but knowing that the beams of the sunlight according to what I could see in a standard book on light are parallel and a spotlight being conic uh, you know uh, mm-hmm. I mean the light would not be parallel um, how would I achieve parallel light from a spotlight which in a sense is a, is a contradiction and um, he on the other side um, told me that there are lenses which, mm-hmm. which um, you know makes up for that because mm-hmm. that problem is not a new problem mm-hmm. so I thought I had discovered a new problem but it turns out that science had been dealing with that conundrum for a while mm-hmm. and just to say so so in that sense one could say it's the whole idea of collaborating and asking for you know um, input from various sides uh, really started before I even had a studio while I was still in art school mm-hmm. and and the key as I said was that it had to do with a shift in the definition of authenticity and you know the myth of the artist that the myth is not you know it's not in the table is how I use the table that makes it art mm-hmm. whether the table is made in one way or the other is of course essential but whether I have made it with my hands is not uh, in my view uh, relevant <laughs> but what makes you interesting is that you open the doors to the studio in a way that very few people do and that you have the studio as a site of creation rather than administration right? well yes i mean so there's a few there's a few first of all i think there's a lot of studios and pretty much i mean almost all younger artists who are at least the ones who are working they have studios in which something like this is going on so i mean it now in this case it's a very large studio but it's not it's just one of i guess there's about 10 large studios like this in berlin so it's not uh, by all means um, that unusual right and there are several studios around the world which are even a lot larger like Jeff Koons studio or Damon Hirst studio and, and Murakami studio and so on but, but, but in Hirst's studio one you have no access so I know well, the difference well, first of all the, for, first of all absolutely that's closed you know that say one couldn't imagine studio Damien Hirst or Maybe one can imagine what that would look like, but like, but but you can't imagine, say, that being something which would become part of the practice in a in a public facing no, way. But so also, that, that that in a self-generating way, what point does does the collaboration, rather than the administration of like, I need I need someone to go do all this? Put yes, but I'm momented in the sense that I don't feel. Um, so I have contact with these people, and in that sense, I have a number of. Mm-hmm. You know, so I guess 
my point is that because my work always has been very focused on the end user of the work, the ex- person who is experiencing it, the mm-hmm. the the potential of the work was never really in the mythology 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 of making the work, and that is, I think, why some artists um, chooses to keep their studio. Uh, secret and uh, closed and um, I'm also frankly speaking because it's disruptive to uh, have an open studio and the truth is also you cannot walk in here if you should please also make that clear because a lot of people keep asking because they take it for granted that it's like a museum or gallery because we have kind of maintained a degree of transparency but the truth is it's not you can't come you can't walk in and um, and um, but it's not a secret how we work or how but for um, so as to as to as to the, your question, the the collaboration is um, is more um, it's actually more pragmatic. Um, I have um, two teams, you could say, in constant uh, dialogue, and one. And the one team is the team which is out in the world, which is specialists, like a glass specialist, mm-hmm. a silver coating specialist, a, uh, you know, a ceramic surface uh, etching specialist in glass. These are people who are so specialized they're not here. But then I have people in here, like maybe a person who's educated as an architect, who then gradually gets more and more skillful on what ceramic... Um, treatments are there of glass what what's the five primary companies in the world how do they work what's the state of the art that they're working on now who are the industrial developers who are supplying to these companies so we develop uh, a a kind of um, a work relationship where where um, i start out with an idea that i would like to develop a optical um, phenomena uh, related to the use of glass and print and or sort of surface treatment of the glass. I'm hoping to uh, create a, a kind of a 3D effect in the glass, which is a kind of mm-hmm. a, an optical effect. So, so that is a typical outset. Then um, I get one or two or maybe even three people involved, um, which is currently the case. Uh, in, and they are then studying uh, where do we find solutions to some of these glass questions um, in ways that are also um, might have an interesting process through which we can in, engage, or maybe it's also about um, conservatory questions like does it you know doesn't work if you wash the glass mm-hmm. off with a wet sponge then it falls off, and and then they typically we have a sequence of um, development meetings. Um, where I, my role is as the artist to maintain the artistic ruder, ruder like the direction. Because yeah, yeah. and I and sometimes the direction is um, highly um, specialized in terms mm-hmm. of um, like a trajectory where I know. And sometimes it's a lot more intuitive mm-hmm. and just is and, and more playful. <clears throat> and that actually varies a lot. There's mm-hmm. simply no. Um, so typically I would be having a. Meeting, a meeting for one or two hours where we would go through 
all the different ways that glass can be treated mm -hmm. within a certain color range, within mm -hmm. a certain optical range. Mm -hmm. And that might inquire, be a, with a company from Japan, one in Germany, and maybe one from Czech, mm -hmm. the Czech country, which was actually the case. If that's what you were doing earlier. Yeah, so, that, so I was doing that yesterday. So anyway, so that's, a, so that's an example. And then we, then we set out, and then I, I know that I, I can see that, to my surprise, the one thing, uh, the colors that I did not anticipate, they actually mm -hmm. ended up looking better, and then we pursued that direction. Mm -hmm. Then we do all kinds of scaling and trying and models and mock-ups, a wall and wallpaper down small mm -hmm. scale, big scale, and, and mm -hmm. then gradually it's a spatial experimentation which sometimes is tedious and slow, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's more playful and just tossing, mm -hmm. tossing things around. Mm -hmm. um, and now, now then imagine there's like 20 or 30 projects like this going on at the same time. So that mm -hmm. means that I might not have that glass conversation until maybe in two or three weeks, maybe four weeks again, because it, it just takes time for them to produce samples, mm -hmm. to cut the glass, to get the mirror coating mm -hmm. uh, or the sandblasting of a small sample. You have to wait for the companies to do mm -hmm. it and so on. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's tomorrow, but maybe very often it takes them a month if mm -hmm. they need to. Because then we are now ordering a lot of samples and, and mm -hmm. testing things and so on. Mm -hmm. And then that means, so, so having 20 balls in the air at the same time sounds like a lot, but also the development of a project typically takes a year. So seen over that sequence of, of that time, mm -hmm. and maybe there's like 50 people involved with researching, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Maybe it's, the truth is that probably there's like 20 people in that team, um, mm -hmm. but you know, they involve other people mm -hmm. as well. Um, and the, but the, this is one thing that I'm really curious about, is that even sort of, you know, as I think the, of artists maybe who are in your uh, category, you know, Coons, Hearst, um, I down the street, you know, that very few are as just sheer productive as you, capable of handling this number of projects at once. Is this a sort of, is this... But then I gave away, now we spoke about the artistic or the more, mm -hmm. yeah, well, whether that is the creative process, but you know, the idea, and, and, and a nice way of saying what I just said is that it's turning thinking into doing. Mm -hmm. Because you start with an idea, mm -hmm. or, and the idea might be verbalizable, but mm -hmm. it might also just be a, a gut feeling mm -hmm. or intuition, if you, if you believe in that. And then you take, um, you know, step by step, and you process, process it, mm -hmm. and, and you get scientists, and you might even get a ge geographer or economist. Or you get so many people involved, mm -hmm. and then at some point, it is action. It's not an idea. It's physical. It's out there in the world. It's full of uh, trajectories, and it's um, it's about causality, mm -hmm. whether it's an object or a situation. Mm -hmm. So, um, see now this this. Um, this process is, I think, um, what is kind of going on in in the house. There is this mm -hmm. idea of. Um, Are you talking about this house? Yeah. Yes, and, and and maybe a key element. And now I lost your question, but just to follow that little string, one one very often makes the mistake and says that what is then the creative, uh, you know, output of the things at the end. You know, is that then creative? Is the creativity so stuck into that object? And that, I think, is not the case. You could say the object is a representation of the accumulated creative effort, uh, and some people would refer to that. But what I think is creative is somewhere along the path I made a choice between, let's say, red and blue, and also not that is very creative, but the consequences that that choice has 
on both the world and on the next step is what makes it creative. So creativity lays outside the studio, outside the choice between red and blue. It is the, do you see, so creativity lays in the relational aspect, in like how does blue influence the world versus how does red influence the world? I absolutely agree because, and this is something that I think is an interesting part of your practice is in a sense that all of your works have involved the intangible. For me, yeah. and this is something that I think you're a poet of the intangible and a poet exactly. of the things that exactly. one cannot touch but one perceives and a poet of these things. And there's nothing more intangible than how it is that you make a room full of different human yes. beings and organisms come together for a project, come together for a dinner party, come together for a meeting and leave inspired. How do you create that feeling in the studio? But I think it's a combination between uh, what we know and what we physically um, embody. Uh, so it's a very a key element is ob obviously to be conscious about one's presence and to what extent the hospitality one enjoys when being here is both stimulating physically and um, intellectually is, is maybe oh, uh, overstating it, but you know mentally in some way. And in that sense, um, I think the one of my great interests is, of course, uh, the mix between ephemera and mm. quality in life. So I'm not really interested in ephemera as a, as a, from a natural science point of view, but I'm, I'm interested in to what extent does the ephemera, in a greater, the greater sense, mm. offer us an opportunity to examine contextual questions related to quality in life, mm. existence, um, ident identity, self, um, do I feel well, do I not feel mm -hmm. well, and, and stuff like that. And in that sense, uh, my aspiration, even though I often uh, leaned on natural scientists or, or, or fundamental scientists, my, my interest is really from a social scientific. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I think art has a you know greater um, social scientific um, potential than a natural scientific, because art is not science basically. But art, I think, as I see it, is a you know great um, societal or civic societal um, di uh, force, mm -hmm. dynamic force, synergetic force. Um, and that's why when we speak, we spoke before about creativity, because there is a tendency, and uh, it's also relevant to uh, exercise a little bit of criticality, there is a tendency, especially from um, pre-packaged designer magazine uh, concepts, um, there's a tendency to, to believe in the objectification of a creative uh, atmosphere, <laughs> like the idea of the myth of the atmosphere. Yeah. That's why the ephemera is very important to not to understand that atmosphere and like in 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 uh, and maybe this is more ten twenty so it's so of course it's very important not to objectify the atmosphere because by doing so you disconnect it from its critical potential uh, and huh. then it becomes I guess you could call it a wellness uh, phenomenon and there's one thing I'm very conscious about and that is that this studio is not about wellness uh, even though one might feel very well. But the idea of wellness is obviously a kind of escapistic, uh, dysfunctional um, societal, uh, societal um, branch, which might, mm -hmm. in other ways, uh, have a, you know... So I'm not saying yoga is bad, but this is not a, a yoga studio. Mm -hmm. um, That's interesting, because it's, it was something that I've sort of noticed that you sort of have subtly downplayed maybe some of the things that 
to me as an outsider and as a as a journalist seem incredible as the sort of the, the amount that people stay with the company, the amount that people famously yeah. enjoy coming to work, that these things are not necessarily things that you no, so much are. I think it's a social cohesion. Which is interesting. It's a social cohesion and atmospheric conditions plays a part of that. But but and it's not that I'm not I'm not I do think atmospheric questions and ephemera and so on are highly important. I do believe in design matters and I do think that uh, thing. But for me, um, it only... Um, but it's, uh, my, my point is here really to, to say that like in my artworks, the experience itself is like an entry level mm-hmm. to enter into an opportunity, into a space through which one can ask questions which would otherwise have been hard to ask. Mm-hmm. Not impossible, but more difficult to ask. One question could be, do I feel included or do I feel excluded? In my immediate, in, in a larger context, like in, in my society, right? Do mm-hmm. I here in this room or does this architecture actually oppress mm-hmm. me? Does it support me? These are atmospheric questions which obviously are linked to uh, questions of uh, well-being, mm-hmm. inclusion and mm-hmm. exclusion and so on. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I, so I'm, yes, very pro the necessity to have a critical um, and, 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 and inspired discussion about what does atmosphere offer us. Mm-hmm. But I, I just mean for the sake of um, you know, the, the, t- the, t- the tendency to, to, to say, well, once you have a beautiful room, you are probably going to be happy. That, I think, is a big misunderstanding, <laughs> even though it sells on Instagram, on the on the magazine, and you know what I mean. So, so I'm just saying that uh, the rec- the potential lays in the combination between uh, a critical relationship with atmosphere, which should not be misunderstood as an elimination or not believing in atmosphere, but that with uh, uh, with an opportunity to actually examine well what are the conditions uh, here? What does the conditions here offer me with regards to seeing myself in the context of my surroundings? Mm-hmm. And I can go a little bit deeper into that psychologically speaking, because that is, a, I think, a, like you can sort of like a little sort of babushka doll in the doll uh, type of inside of that. There is, I think, a psychological um, thing where the mind and the body, I think, are hinged, like, mm-hmm. like on a hinge. And that means that sometimes we find ourselves reading an article, seeing a photo, a painting, a theatre play, what we call normally call culture, and of course I think art is right at the heart of that. Sometimes we see something in which we recognise ourselves, but we don't recognise ourselves. How should I say it? We see ourselves. Let me say it. We. See see it in a way where we suddenly realize that we ourselves were in fact engaged in that in that same thing we had just not come about to verbalize mm-hmm. it yet so it is as if you are seeing yourself in the nearby future because you are in the way of processing some narrative and then you suddenly read it in a book and you say oh that's exactly how i feel mm-hmm. this is me mm-hmm. and what happens there is that the book and this i think is an atmospheric a cumulative thing. The book, it is as if the book is reading you. Mm-hmm. It is telling me, it is giving structure and language and dimensions to a not yet verbalized or conscious emotional field, mm-hmm. whether stress or 
a joy, but it gives structure to something through which, which I think it was, that is what we call identification, and we suddenly realize uh, that I am actually being listened to. The book mm -hmm. is actually listening to my need or my wishes. And that I think is incredibly interesting because suddenly this, the atmosphere allows for the atmosphere of the book allows you to connect to the world. Because mm -hmm. then if I'm being listened to, I must be good enough. I'm not marginalized. Mm -hmm. I'm on... I'm sorry, that was, a, no, that was is, going into this very is a detail. Lovely, this is a lovely question. I'd love to have much longer to speak to you. Um, could you tell me, um, firstly, about um, that your... The, the the concept of a post-studio to you, that it feels like this is much more than a studio. Um, and two questions regarding that. You know, that, as I said, Jeff Koons' studio produces Jeff Koons' work. Yours produces thoughts, um, entrepreneurship, um, political ideology independent research and object. Uh, so first of all, when do those things begin to contradict each other? Is there a point where, say, having a, a member of D-Linker, D-Linker, come here for, for six months, as they did? Is, when does that contradict? Also selling a half a million um, solar bulbs or operating a uh, uh, an art practice. I think um, if I would have a solidified view on what defines the studio and what not, uh, it it would immediately uh, slow down and maybe even stop the process because <laughs> I would be very busy at mis you know managing the uh, the pr precise overlap in in what is what I experienced and what my idea of the studio is. So the truth is, uh, the, uh, the way I see it is more like the studio is like a tree and it kind of keeps growing and I don't mean to be uh, banal, but then there are, I mean, seasons where there's a lot more green than others and, and we go through these cycles, uh, but it's never the same, but it has a sort of fundamental set of principles that are not really changing. And then there are offspring, so once I was starting to get involved with architectural questions where the architectural competences became so essential to the design decisions. I said to uh, the, 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 my long-term studio director who was running the architects, I think we should uh, just take uh, the consequences and say, let's form an architectural company. Because hmm. the artistic element that I can bring this into is this... SOS. Yes, and, and that's how I actually started. At some point, it just became so that the work that the architects were doing uh, had such significance that it would be um, mismanaging the, you know, uh, it would be the right thing to do. Uh, so I, you could say I outsourced it, and the, there's, a, there's a several, several, several elements to this. I am not an architect, first of all, uh, and I have come to immensely uh, care for and respect the talent of an architect, and understanding that I, but I'm very interested in shape and design, and, and as we spoke about ephemera, I'm not really, to be honest, very good uh, as an architect. This allowed me then to do things that I would otherwise in the studio not have been able to do uh, unless I would have been untruthful to the fact that I actually did not make 
the work, you could mm -hmm. say that, right? So, and the other way is that I got more and more involved with energy and policy and, and, and the questions. Mm -hmm. And that led to saying, okay, I'm going to be more efficient simply isolating a part of me into another project and do essentially um, the little son um, that was so far away from art. So I still think of it as a work of art, but I don't think that the people working at Lillison necessarily appreciates me calling them a part of a social artwork. I don't necessarily think it's about that, so I don't really also care so much. But essentially, um, your question maybe comes back to, I do think that the studio is an ongoing work of art that is evolving all the mm -hmm. time. Um, calling it a work of art is probably a mistake because I'm going to nail down, I'm going to then hang it on a hook called the art hook. Um, and post-studio, I think that uh, it will definitely change, but then again it's changing all the time. I obviously think that there is not going to be more uh, artworks made which has my signature. Uh, I doubted that the studio will continue to make art, but a number of the research elements and the agency types of activities and the sort of um, um, structural stuff that we are involved with might or might not continue. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a significant. Are you talking about after you? Yeah. Well, if I would disappear, if I would die. Let's say this. Yeah. Yes. yes. I d I disappear. I, yes. I prefer to say disappear. Yeah. Well, so some artists think that the studio is totally and utterly them. Uh, yeah. In my case, I think the studio is next to me, and uh, I am uh, the director or the person uh, in charge. And that I, on the door. Yeah, yes, and I and I make that very clear as well. But should I dis, should I disappear? I don't know what the studio um, would choose to do. There is an immense amount of talent, and if there is an unforeseeable um, opportunity, um, that might be it. Uh, one thing I'm sure about: it would be uh, wrong to turn the studio into a kind of museum. Uh, sort of uh, the day the artist died, the brush was still laying on the table. The kind of mythologization that you see in a lot of other artist studios, where don't move the chair because the artist once said it. I think that's crap uh, and doesn't and doesn't interest me at all. Mm -hmm. That's or that kind of romanticism mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. would be supporting the atmospheric mm -hmm. uh, objectification that I'm very skeptical about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are you, is there any worry that you have about the mythology of the studio? That say, that like I said, there's no other artist working right now. I think you have to go back to Warhol um, before that to Bauhaus to have an idea where the studio forms the mythology of the artist in the way that, say, factor, the factory in Warhol, as I said. Does that, what do you think about this? about the, the notion of the... Yeah, most of these other places, except Warhol, of course, was incredibly dogmatic and were driven by a manifestative sort of system. Uh, yeah. I don't think that is the case. Uh, I do think what the primary ob ob objective here is is to make art and mm -hmm. the artworks that I want to make. But, but, um, but there is not really... Um, what is more interesting to me is to see that you have cultural institutions which are platforms such as art museums. The art museums are uh, managed in a sort of typical modern, modern top-down hierarchical, typical old men type of 
systems and you're suddenly in a situation where artists like myself once showing my work I very often have to deal with uh, institutions which are a hundred times more conservative than the studio in which I am in and this presents me uh, some facts about the fact that the studio as a system or as a body as an institution actually holds a significant uh, power which wouldn't or power is not the right a significant potential with regards to what is going on within the cultural sector what are the platforms so there are the artists the studios the museums the galleries and so on and as the galleries are so incredibly um, obsessive about the art market and the art fairs and the art auctions the the institutions and the museums they are falling back into um, very uh, retroactive activities such as They're basically repeating themselves and being incredibly conservative. It leaves a lot of space for the artist studios to actually take up. You know, there's so much non-exploited potential that the studio can easily take. So here we are, about a hundred people. We're, we're working. We follow. Uh, uh, you know, we try to also follow a robust worth work uh, ethics with. Uh, Uh, you know, relevant scene for Berlin proportions, a relevant salary, a relevant sort of uh, handling of um, the team and how, you know, with regards to contracting insurance and sick days and leaves and all these things. So we try to match what one would expect from a company with a hundred uh, people uh, working for them. Mm-hmm. And I take a great, I, I, was, I, was, I don't want to also emphasize it too much, but I do take pride in the fact that, you know, we have 60 kids in kindergartens or schools of the kids working here with us. You know, everybody pays tax and we go home and we come in the morning and, and I, I think as a it's it's just so important to say we are a co producer of society like any other place. Instead of having this idea that the artist studio is like kind of when you step into the artist studio you're kind of suddenly outside of society. You're in that dream world. See now i don't want to say that we are not dreaming and we don't. No, 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 no. I think I think it's I think if anything, the idea of an artist studio where the, you can also have paternity leave is that there is an element of that which is dreaming as well, and there's an element of that which is utopian. Yes, but there is a but the whole the whole idea is that we have worked very hard, and I say we because this is really also due to the talent of a lot of other people working here, that we work very hard on creating a sustainable work ethics and the whole element with the kitchen and the food and how we try to treat each other. And we are probably, um, we're not the highest paid uh, workplace in, in the city. We are also definitely by far not the lowest. But but there's a whole element in that which I think is, um, is so important to say just because we're in the cultural sector it doesn't mean that we're disorganized or just because we are working with creativity it doesn't mean that we are unpredictable and out of you know out of sync with reality and so on mm-hmm. um, but but it's always dangerous to say these things because it obviously has an element of pragmatization or functionalization of the life here because on the other side we are doing so much interdisciplinary bonkers, crazy kind of experimental works, which sometimes is producing nothing but misfortunes. Uh, because it's, because it, so it is, so I just want to hold it up against it that we are still an artist studio, even though we have made, a, to made some effort to actually be uh, on the front end of what is a, what is a, in terms of labor management, what's a healthy and inclusive environment. Mm-hmm. I believe it was Flaubert who said that one should be orderly and bourgeois in life, so one may be revolutionary in art. 
Yeah, so we also know that you know hiring people who have had a real work somewhere in the city is very different than hiring some student who have not really actually tried mm-hmm. to work. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously, we hire both, and and it's mm-hmm. it's a little more complex. What we call it is the we what I call it is working according to the apple peeling machine experiment, which is an experiment in anthropology where two teams were assembling a machine made for apple peeling. Mm-hmm. The one team did not know what the machine is for, but the other team did know, and. Uh, the one team who did not know, they were assembling it with the same speed as the one who did know. Interestingly enough, it, it's not really a major difference. But what is different is that afterwards, playing a money game, the team that knew they would invest for a common good were the team who did not know. It's a lot stories lot longer. But the team who would not know, they would invest for more egoistic uh, gains and not for the team. Mm-hmm. So in that, when, in that way, we are a typical Scandinavian workplace where everybody, as far as we uh, succeed, because that is the tree which swings back and forth in life, right? But as far as we succeed, people are, to a large extent, aware uh, not just on what they're working, but also where it's going and why they're working on it. Why are we working with glass and optical uh, illusions and glass? What, what does that have to do with anything? So it's important that the architect, because he's sitting talking to a Japanese uh, company and he needs to be able to notice, wow, actually the glass that varies in thickness on the plane is probably better because the optical quality. Uh, so mm-hmm. knowing why is both about a commitment, it also actually has a element of precision um, when when it is research and mm-hmm. sort of more laboratory work. I'm, I'm really interested in, in, in sort of, and I think it's really striking how you can talk so specifically about these things. I really, that, um, one thing that I was wondering was about how you, um, yeah, was about actually leading on from what you were saying about Scandinavia. Um, we've talked a lot about your this and your approaches. But like, how much did sort of growing up in Iceland, in both in the wilderness and also in the sort of the the phenomenal nature and landscape that you have there, but also in the sort of the kind of social democracy? How how, how has this influenced your approach to running a creative space? It's a good question. I actually don't know. Um, I, I, at a relatively early stage, was allowed to challenge my numbness to nature because I just simply ha- spent a lot of time in it. And I think if you don't spend time in nature, you get, you get less detailed or, about it. I think it's very basic. Um, when I was five years old, I was spending my summers in Iceland with my grandparents and the oil was rationalized because it was the oil crisis in the early 70s. Every night at seven, I think, after dinner, the government would shut down for the oil and the electricity went out. So it was like a blackout in the city. And as a child, that was like immensely exciting so that all the light in the city would disappear in one blow. So every, and, and it was, um, I think like in several countries, they rationalized the use of energy and you know, one day a week there was no cars and so on. And, and, and uh, as a child, I, was, I remember that the whole family, all my uncles and aunts, we would then move to sit by the window. Uh, so sometimes uh, the relationship with nature came you know, simply from the fact that we would then gather by the little bit of twilight that the Icelandic sort of um, 
uh, summer, of course, uh, has plenty of. Mm-hmm. And we would then sit and do what we were, we were doing in a tight-knit group around the window, just like we were at a campfire. We would maybe turn on a candle, of course, as well, and so on. So that I have a fond memory of, where this amazing blue light, and my, uh, and very often I realize that the moment you real, you actually pay attention to the quality of something is when once you see it isolated from its context. So the fact that the blue light came in through the window made it more distinctive than what I'd be walking around outside in nature. So often, um, um, my experience of nature was amplified by the fact that my parents had me when they were about 20 in Denmark. So I was, I was born in Denmark mm-hmm. and uh, they divorced soon after, but I really spent most of my summers with my grandparents in Iceland. Mm-hmm. And typically my, grandpa- my, my grandparents, they were very outdoorsy. They didn't, didn't have um, any means. They were, my whole, pretty much my whole tree of families, like, and, 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 and that accounts for literally thousands of people as it is in Iceland. They are all fishermen in my family. They were pretty much all fishermen, except one little branch, which had a bit of academia um, going on. But, but in so, in so, in so that meant that we would spend a lot of time on the countryside where we would, eat, on every farm, we would typically run into family members. So I did jump around a lot, crossing creeks, uh, fishing, making small dams and so on from very, very small on. Um, and of course that has influenced me. What I think is important here is though to say that there is no essentialistic truth to be found in this inspiration uh, inspiratory toolbox that that gave me. Because I think once you grow up, for instance, in Palermo or in Sicily, you will have another relationship with light, which is distinctive to your upbringing and the culture in which you grow up. And that will have a qualitative impact on how you make your decisions in that particular setting. And I find that very inspiring too. Uh, Mm -hmm. I am immensely fond of once you are down by equator, for instance, in Ethiopia, and the sun setting takes 10 minutes or maybe 20 minutes from it is being totally bright day until it is completely Mm -hmm. dark night. So very different than than Iceland. Straight down. Yes, and and the kind of um, incredible darkness which which I will never ever see in Iceland, of course, uh, created uh, cultures and and skills uh, with uh, the nomads navigating to the stars and the light the experience of moonlight in the dunes and so on. So I'm just saying that every, so I'm just, I, I so very much love uh, my, my um, relationship to Iceland and I've come to care for it even more in my older parts of my life because at some point in life I was also, uh, you know, as a teenager, I just could not have it. Um, but, but, but quite frankly speaking, we should, be, um, we should be careful to make rules on on the expense of people who have other settings for light, which I think also creates the profound cultures and literatures and poetries and musics and in in other situations. And that's why I'm very happy to talk about mine. But don't I ever I think don't ever make the mistake to think that there is a kind of universalistic tendency in it because we should be careful to kind of promote the nerdic and this slight <laughs> romanticization that this very magazine also kind of promotes. It's it's a bit it's a bit more complex because had I not had my other foot in Denmark, spending my whole school in Denmark, experiencing the robustness of the Danish society, which by all means were not quite as progressed in Iceland, which were very well you know, uh, up until recently, the Icelandic economy, I mean, up until the uh, 80s, the Icelandic krona was just some kind of inflammatory uh, sort of um, inflational. Um, I mean, the robustness of that little country wouldn't necessarily match the one of Denmark and Sweden mm-hmm. uh, at the time, at least. And, and in that sense, I must say, I've learned so much and, 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 and 
Danmark was the window through which I could sit and watch Iceland, and that is how I came to treasure it. It's not unknown that the people in Iceland are often the ones who are the least progressive about their own nature. <laughs> you know, building uh, dams, uh, drawing power lines across the most prestigious, uh, pres- precious uh, countryside, and politically being not necessarily very environmentally advanced, um, mm-hmm. and so on. It's like sand in Sahara for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned rules there. One thing I wanted to know is what are your dinner party rules? Dinner party rules? Rules for a really good dinner party. Well, we try to do home cooking when we offer the opportunity. We don't do dish serving and we um, try to, uh, but we still uh, like to exercise great hospitality and I try to uh, encourage in a dinner event uh, the people who do not know each other to speak first as we tend to see people sample matching the kind of people who know each other. So I, I start typical dinner parties encouraging people to sort of uh, seek out a person who, with whom they have no contact and knowledge and and um, the dinner parties are often small small opportunities to actually uh, embrace the unforeseenable uh, as we have so little time on this tiny fragile planet we might as well make the most of it and the dinner party is such a comfortable uh, format uh, because everybody's they know the rules fork left knife right and then you know food and plate and then you might as well see if there is an amplificatory potential so very often try to host um, or find time to host parties here once once there is people in town Um, last year I had the Berlinale who opened yesterday Uh, last year I had them yesterday here where all the juries and the some of the filmmakers were here and this was a great opportunity to do exactly that because obviously uh, even though they're all within the same branch uh, 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 field they actually knew surprisingly little of mm-hmm. each other mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then I try to I try also to be cross-sectorial so I try to take somebody from the public domain like a politician or people who works with politicians which are typically a little more interesting than the actual politicians they call it like um, Imbelsman, what do you call it? Um, so, pub, so public worker basically, um, or government worker. Or, or we try to also, and then we try to, um, you know, um, get people from academia or science uh, in. But these are the, so these are my kind of thumb rules. Always mm-hmm. invite somebody who does not know anybody and then start by introducing that person to everybody. <laughs> That's really nice. That's really nice. Um, I uh, could sort of could ask more questions. One of the the last ones that I'd like to ask is that sort of, um, do you take any the one of the things that you're describing is is a way that you can scale your work. You could produce more work with more people by not by acknowledging the things that you don't know and then beginning to work with them. Do you sort of look at it that way? Do you look at it as a sort of as a thing that, that this might even be taking some guidelines from Silicon Valley? And if not, where are the places that you? I actually thought about scalability, and um, but not necessarily for more work, but for to democratize the accessibility to my work because my work has become uh, enormously expensive. For which I'm actually very thankful because it has allowed me to take more risk than I would be otherwise able to. But I've been interested in uh, finding a way to actually uh, you know, do things which would be 
more accessible for larger groups mm. who are not necessarily uh, uh, who cannot necessarily afford uh, expensive work. So, so in that sense, I've been looking into it. Otherwise, I'm doing enough. I think um, um, I haven't. I mean, I'm happy as things have, and for the time being, have turned out to be very stable uh, and um, gradually evolving in a healthy never I never had many I never really had any jumps in my sort of sort of in my evolution in the tree in the growing tree it never really s- sort of skipped one year and just jumped to become twice as big but um, and I don't see how I could um, scale without losing touch mm-hmm. except that sometimes you could maybe think of doing a uh, uh, you know, I, I, very much I would like to make a compass, like a navigational thing that you can have in your hand. And uh, but sadly, there's not a lot of compass companies. They're all dying because of the GPS. But so much would like to make a compass, and I would like to do, you know, maybe a thousand of them. And then, you know, you could easily see a lot of people around the world walking around or having this like artwork kind of compass in their hand. Mm-hmm. And then they would all turn the same way. So we create a kind of community with all point, well, more or less to Iceland. <laughs> But then the, all the compasses, they would all point the same way. That's a kind of a scalable artwork. Mm-hmm.